Bruno Bauer was a German philosopher and theologian on the left side of your screen who lived in the 1800s. He, along with a few others, conjured up this idea that a man by the name of Jesus of Nazareth actually never existed. Bauer proposed, along with a few others in his guild, that Jesus was merely a fictitious character and an historical individual by the name of Jesus never did actually live, breathe, and exist and walk the streets of Palestine. Now, there was a ushering in of other scholars and historians that came after Bauer and simply said his claims are unfounded. They're not true. Even people that don't believe the Bible rushed to the aid of historical reliability and said, in fact, there's far too much evidence to deny that a man named Jesus actually lived. The man on the right side of the screen, Bart Ehrman, is a longtime professor of religion at the University of North Carolina on Capitol Hill. And though not a Christian, in recent years, Ehrman has probably written more than any other theologian or scholar on the fact that a man named Jesus of Nazareth really did exist. Ehrman says to deny that is to deny history and to be foolish and dishonest. But on the other hand, Ehrman says to believe that Jesus is actually the Messiah of God is to be mistaken and deceived. He says, in fact, Jesus did exist, but was only made to be God by his followers after his death in about A.D. 30 through 33. You know, there have always been discussion about who Jesus is in barbershops and magazines at checkout lines in discussions around the table with family members and freshmen open to introduction to religion classes, people have discussed the person and the work of Jesus of Nazareth. And as Tom read for us a moment ago, we know this goes back to the first century. Matthew 16, verse 13 says, Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi and his disciples posed the question. He posed it to them. Who do men say that I, the son of man, am? And they gave various answers. Some say you're John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says in verse 16, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus not only pronounces a blessing on Peter's confession, but in that moment, Jesus says, this is the only right way to ever view me. If you're going to have a right relationship with God and view Jesus as he truly is, the only wise way to do that is to back up the claim that Peter makes in Matthew chapter 16. And in verse 18, in verse 16, you know, Jesus is revealed to us in Scripture as the Messiah, the Christ of God. But people have all sorts of ideas on exactly who Jesus is. You know, the Bible tells us it's right to have a personal relationship with God, a personal relationship with Jesus. But every one of us must be careful that we don't create our own Jesus, a Jesus of our own liking. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says that God made man in his image, but we don't have God's permission to make him in ours. And so maybe we believe that we follow the Jesus of the Bible, but what has actually happened is we simply follow the Jesus of our own making. What we're going to do tonight is look at several portraits. In fact, 21 different portraits. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> just six. Andre said to me tonight, how many points do you have, Dad? Eight, ten, just six tonight. Different portraits that people have concerning Jesus of Nazareth, their own Jesus and their mindset. And maybe ours, if we find ourselves depicted in these images tonight, my Jesus would never. And in the end, we need to make sure that our view of Jesus is the one that was prophesied, promised and revealed to us in the New Testament. Let's begin. Number one, my Jesus would never claim to be God. You know, some people come along and they say, OK, I'll grant you that a man named Jesus actually existed and walked the streets of Palestine, but he never claimed to be God. And people that make these sorts of claims about Jesus, they come alongside and they say things like he had good moral standards. 
he was a fair individual and taught good and honest values, and he's worth following in that regard. But don't ever follow a Jesus who claims to be God. And this is a backhanded compliment toward Jesus. It's actually an insult on the same level as saying to somebody, hey, you drive pretty good for a woman. Or, hey, you look really good for somebody your size. I mean, that sounds complimentary, but it's actually an insult. And so it is with those who say, my Jesus would never claim to be God. In John 7 and verse 15, the scribes say, how can this man claim to be the Christ who's never learned letters? Or at his hometown in Nazareth in Mark chapter 6 and verse 2, they said, is not this the carpenter's son? And aren't his brothers James and Joseph and his sisters Mary all in our presence? They thought Jesus to be simply another Jewish rabbi, but the New Testament claims that Jesus is God. John opens his gospel, John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made in him was life. And that life was the light of men. Down in verse 14, John says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Glories of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. The first verse in Mark, Mark chapter one and verse one, Mark says, I'm writing to you the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Luke calls him the son of the most high in Luke 132. And Matthew just says his name is Emmanuel, Matthew 123, which properly translated means God with us. Every one of the Gospels doesn't get out of the first chapter before they're shouting out loud to all who will listen. He's more than a man. He's actually God. As you make your way through the Gospel of John, Jesus says, does and experiences some things that puts this Jesus to death. The idea that somebody would say, well, my Jesus is a good moral teacher, but he never claimed to be God. They wanted to kill Jesus when he claimed to be equal with God by claiming God was his father in John five and verse 18. Jesus was put to death or almost put to death by these individuals because he comes along and he says, I'm equal with the father. And they said, that's blasphemy. When he claimed to be the great I am who was at the burning bush before Moses in John eight and verse 58, they said, this man claims to be older than our father Abraham. And he was and he is. But some people have this view of Jesus. My Jesus would never, ever claim to be God. Now, I don't drink Starbucks. I don't drink coffee. But everybody just about has heard how terrible Starbucks baristas are at spelling individuals names. They've been known for notoriously misspelling even the most common names. And, you know, people have said and there's a theory that's unproved that Starbucks has done this not as a mistake, but instead as a marketing ploy and tactic. Because, you see, when you go to Starbucks and buy a coffee and they misspell your name and then you post it, your friends and neighbors see it. They think it's funny and they say, well, I'm going to go to Starbucks and see how bad they can butcher and misspell my name. Now, nobody knows if this is actually true or not. Is it a genuine mistake or is it a marketing ploy by Starbucks? Has Starbucks really done this to bring in the masses or do they simply hire people with the spelling prowess of a kindergartner? We just don't know. But here's what we do know. Jesus never claimed to be God simply to get attention. Jesus wasn't doing this as a marketing ploy. He was and is the Christ of God. Mark 14, 61 and 62. Notice all of the passages, and we're going to do these quickly so we can move on to number two, where the claims of Jesus being divine are actually mentioned in the New Testament. He received worship, Matthew 28 and verse 17. He's called the Almighty God, the Alpha and the Omega, Revelation 1.8. In John 20 and verse 28, Romans 9 and verse 5, Titus 2 and verse 13, Hebrews 1 and verse 8. In those four passages, Jesus is explicitly called God. He said to receive the same honor as the father, John 5, 22 and 23. And in John 5, 21, he gives life of himself just like God does. The New Testament says he has all authority. Matthew 28 and verse 18. Everything the New Testament tells us about Jesus is 
He's more than a rabbi. He's more than a skilled teacher. He actually is God. The only two reasons I can think of why somebody would have this first Jesus in their mind, my Jesus would never claim to be God, is reason number one, they just haven't looked at the overwhelming evidence that's presented in the New Testament about Jesus and his identity. Maybe they don't know the passages and they haven't spent enough time with the New Testament claims. You remember Jesus told the Sadducees, you do err not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. Maybe they just don't know. But here's reason number two. Maybe they do know. And maybe they want a Jesus that would never claim to be God, because if he is more than a rabbi, if he really is divinity dressed up in flesh and blood, then you know what that means. That means we've got to submit to everything he says. That means his words are not merely suggestions, but instead divine ultimatums. And the reality is sometimes we would rather be comfortable than correct. And so we'll accept an edited Jesus over an eternal one because that just makes us too uncomfortable. But if we're going to have the Jesus of the Bible, We've got to put this Jesus to bed that would never claim to be God. Now, here's number two. Some people have a Jesus and they say, my Jesus would never claim to reign over human sexuality. Rosaria Butterfield recently came out with a book. It's brand new. It's called Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age. And what Butterfield does in this book is she mentions five lies that our culture is currently telling us and then says, if you're a Christian, if you're one of God's people, here's how you need to respond. And two of the lies in the book, the second lie and the fifth lie are these. Lie number two or number one in our case is homosexuality is normal. And then the fifth lie is like unto the second, and it's simply that transgenderism is normal. What Butterfield says is, listen, if you're a Christian, it's not enough to be familiar with those lies because the narrative has moved from liberal society and culture. And it's not simply that these things are just going to be practiced. But more than that, Butterfield says, if you're going to be God's person, you need to be armed with the proper arguments to defend the truth. Because we are now living in a time and in a culture that says those things are normal. And if you don't believe them, support them then you're backwards, behind the times, unloving and just weird. And so we need to be armed with the truth. Genesis chapter one, verses 26 and 27. You remember Moses writes, God made man in his own image and the image of God made he them male and female. He created them. But you see, some people come along and they say, hey, my Jesus would never reign over human sexuality. They come along and they say things like, you know what? We really ought to just stick with what Jesus said. And Jesus never said anything about human sexuality. And in our time of gender dysphoria and identity crisis, sexually speaking, there are people that have just said, if you just stick to the letters in red, if you just listen to what Jesus says, he never touches on those things. And so if you're going to be Jesus's disciple, you shouldn't touch on those things either. Turn your Bible to Matthew 19. In Matthew 19, the Pharisees come to Jesus and in verse three, they want to talk to Jesus about divorce. But Jesus actually is more interested in talking about marriage. And so they bring a question to Jesus about divorce. And in verse four, Jesus says, have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? Jesus quotes from Genesis chapter two and he says, God made them male and female. He goes on in verses five and six to say he made them at the beginning male and female and said, for this cause, a man will leave his father and mother. Therefore, there are no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus says something about human sexuality. And here's what he says. No matter what our culture says, no matter where the goalpost moves in the beginning, God made only two genders, male and female. But more than just two genders, only individuals of opposite genders that are qualified according to God's standard can actually engage in marriage. Only those individuals to say that Jesus never spoke on this subject is to misread and misapply Matthew 19 because he did. But some individuals have a Jesus who would never reign over human sexuality. But that's not enough, Christians. 
It's not enough for us to quote Matthew 19, four through six and say Jesus has some things to say about human sexuality. But there's more as our maker and the one that fashioned us in love to begin with. Jesus doesn't just have a word to say about human sexuality. He seeks to reign over it. And so think about some of the things that Jesus says about our bodies and about purity. In Matthew chapter five in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in verse 27, you've heard it said by those of old time, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whosoever looks on a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery with her already in his heart. If your right eye offends you, pluck it out and cast it from you. It's more profitable for you to enter into life with one eye than having two to be thrown into the lake of hellfire. If your right hand offends you, cut it off and cast it from you. It's more profitable for you to enter into life with one arm than having two to be forever perished in hellfire. Jesus says it matters what you do. In Matthew 19, 9 through 12, Jesus says, no easy, no fault divorce. The only reason two people that are in a God approved marriage can separate is if one of those individuals commits fornication or sexual immorality. Matthew 19, 9 through 12. Jesus doesn't just speak a word to human sexuality. He seeks to reign over. These are not suggestions. They're divine ultimatums. And we live in a society that comes along and they say, hey, if you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to be a Christian, you should probably stay out of those discussions. But the New Testament won't let us off the hook. The New Testament says God is involved. It's his business because he's the one that made us. And we've got to submit our will, our lives and our bodies to him. Time won't allow us to cover all of the verses that Jesus's apostles wrote about this subject. But Hebrews 13 and verse four, the Hebrew author says marriage is honorable and all in the bed undefiled. But whoremongers or sexually immoral people and adulterers, God will judge. Homosexuality in the Bible is actually called an abomination. Leviticus 18, 22. And in Romans 1, 26 and 27, it's called vile, unnatural, and it incites and invites the wrath of almighty God. Sexual sin of any kind, along with other things like lying, gossip, death and dishonesty. According to Paul, people that practice those things will not inherit the kingdom of God. First Corinthians six, nine through ten. The Bible is telling us that God cares about our bodies, our lives, and to have a Jesus whose hands off, who says, you know what? I don't care what other people do is to have an edited version of Jesus conjured up by the modern era. But he's not the Jesus that you read about in the New Testament. None of this is meant to suggest that it is inherently sinful to be tempted with same sex attraction, to have gender identity struggles or even struggle in the area of lust. But what it does mean is this. We serve a God, according to First Corinthians 10, 13, who always makes a way of escape, but never gives a license to practice such. If you struggle in these areas and we all do, the Bible says God will provide a way of escape so that you might be able to bear. But he never provides an applause or a license to practice it. That's the product of our age. And those that have a Jesus that would never seek to reign over human sexuality, who doesn't care what we do with our bodies, as long as we're nice and good and lawful citizens, simply don't have the Jesus of the Bible. This second image, my Jesus would never reign over human sexuality, is not the Jesus we find in the New Testament. But here's the third. My Jesus would never send anyone to hell. Bishop Carlton Pearson made headlines in the early 2000s. He was a bishop of a large mega church, and he said one day he was watching a documentary about Rwanda. And after that documentary, he just prayed to God in frustration. And Pearson said to God, 
I can't serve a God like you if you're going to allow people to live and struggle in poverty. And then after that, send some of them to everlasting hell. Pearson says in that moment, as he prayed to God, God whispered back to him and communicated to him that, you know what? There is no such thing as hell. In fact, the only hell that exists is the hell that people suffer through on this earth. But there won't be any hell for anybody who refuses to submit to obey and give their life over and trust to Jesus. He began to preach this and teach this at his church. And he watched as immediately. His 6,000 member congregation individuals started to leave in droves. The membership says in response to Pearson's claims as they were exiting and finding new places to worship. If God changed his mind about hell, he probably would have done a better job of letting us know than just simply whispering this truth to one man. But you see, Pearson's Jesus would never send anybody to hell. In fact, he couldn't because that would be the wrong thing to do. And many people serve a Jesus in the same fashion, the same light that approves everything, that never wants to offend anyone because everybody's okay. A Jesus who would never send anybody to hell in the end is a Jesus that would never die to keep anybody from going there. You see, if you take hell out of the Bible, the sacrifice of Jesus becomes unnecessary and trivial. Away with Isaiah's words in Isaiah 53, where he says he was crushed and bruised for our iniquities. It pleased the Lord to bruise him by his stripes were healed here for what is unnecessary. More than that, it makes God cruel and mean to put Jesus through all of that when, in fact, there was absolutely nothing on the line. But if we were on our way to a devil's hell. Because of our sins, defiance and disobedience, then the cross is a manifestation of God's love and the most loving thing anybody's ever done for us. Paul says in Romans five and verse nine, the cross shows us we're justified by his blood. And in that justification, we're saved from wrath. Jesus died because he wanted to. But for our sins, because otherwise we couldn't be saved. Turn your Bible to Matthew chapter twenty five. In Matthew chapter 25, there are several of these judgment parables. And in each one of them, Jesus is driving at this reality that apart from repentance and a faithful life and also activity and involvement to go along with that faithfulness will be forever lost. Matthew 25 and verse 10 through 13, he talks about those virgins who didn't bring enough oil and they will beat on the outside of the door and they'll hear these words. I never knew you depart from me. In Matthew 25 and verse 41, he says, these will hear these words depart from me into the lake of eternal destruction prepared for the devil and his angels. And in verse 46, these will go away into everlasting torment, but the righteous into eternal life. Nobody talked about hell more than Jesus because nobody appreciated the reality and the horror of that place more than he did. Jesus died to save people from that place. But if we have a Jesus who would never send anybody to hell. If we have this ecumenical savior where everybody's on good terms with God, no matter what they do or fail to do, we don't have the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus didn't enjoy talking about the subject, but he wouldn't shy away from it. He said there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Luke 13, 28. He said there's a great gulf fix. Luke 16, 26 through 31. And those that are on one side are incapable of passing to the other. You just can't do it. He quotes Isaiah 66 and verse 22 and Mark 9, 43 through 48. And he says in that place. The worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. Jesus says you do everything within your power, everything humanly possible to avoid that place, not because it was make believe. It was far from a scare tactic of the divine. Jesus talked about it because he knew it was real and he wanted every one of us to avoid it. But some people have a Jesus that would never send anybody to hell. Can you imagine? Imagine a judge that never sentenced anybody, a coach that never benched a player, a teacher that never failed a student. Or a parent who never spanked or chastised a child. You know, that sounds fun. No rules. Everything goes until those people become your next door neighbors. They've never had anybody tell them no. They've never been disciplined. Everything's gone their way. Listen, if there is no hell, 
then all of this is for naught. Katy Perry says, I don't believe in heaven. I don't believe in hell. I don't believe in God. I believe in a higher power. And she says that keeps me accountable. Unfortunately for Miss Perry, as civilized as that sounds, human beings are not interested in doing the speed limit when there's no such thing as speeding tickets. The reality is we will not do what's right when there's nothing to govern us, when there's no deterrent. If there is no hell, God is unjust. And if God is unjust, everything is permitted. Then the wicked in Psalm 10 are right to say in Psalm 10 and verse 4 and verse 11, there's no God. We can do what we want and no one sees us. Every atrocity is suddenly justified. Every mistreatment and injustice is suddenly sanitized and everybody's getting away with everything. But if there is an eternal place of separation from almighty God, then nobody loves us more than Christ. Jesus says there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But remember, he wept first. Hebrews five and verse seven. He cried out to God with strong tears from him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard and that he feared. He's told us about hell in the Bible and given us inspired information about it. But in the end, what Jesus wants for every human heart is that we merely know it through revelation, but never through experience. He suffered on our behalf, so we'd never have to go there. But the last thing he wants us to believe is that it doesn't exist. The person that says my Jesus would never send anyone to hell is not following the Jesus of the Bible because Jesus talked about it more than anybody else. And he suffered and died so that we would avoid it. Here's number four. My Jesus would never eat with sinners. The Pharisees knew that a Messiah was coming. They studied the Old Testament and they knew it. The problem with the Pharisees version of Jesus is that their Messiah just wasn't going to do certain things. They didn't expect their Messiah to be associated with sinners, especially Luke's gospel above the other three. If you read in Luke's gospel, they constantly make statements about Jesus and the kinds of things he did that they just assume meant he couldn't be the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. When he converts Levi in Luke chapter five and verse 30, they come to the apostles. Matthew's having this party at his house. Jesus is there. Luke chapter five and verse 30. They call those disciples aside and they say, how is it that your master eats and drinks with sinners? That can't be right. And then he's in Simon's house in Luke chapter seven. And you remember the woman comes there and she's weeping and washing Jesus's feet with her tears and her hair. And Simon thinks within himself in Luke seven and verse thirty nine. If this man were a prophet, surely he would know what kind of woman this is who's touching him. And then right before the three great parables about the lost sheep, lost coin and lost boy, Luke 15 verses one and two says all the sinners and tax collectors drew near to hear Jesus. But the scribes and Pharisees murmured, saying within themselves, this man receives sinners and eats with them. You see, they believed in the Messiah, but their Jesus would never, ever eat with sinners. And if this is our view of Jesus, we've missed him by a mouth. I know the Bible says that evil companions corrupt good morals. And Jesus knew that. But he also knew you don't change people's lives from afar. You've got to get up on them. And Jesus did that without sinning with people, without ever making people think that he was OK with unrighteousness. He spent his time around religious people. If you have a Jesus who would only spend time around people who knew the Bible really well, people that lived upright, good and moral lives, People that never said or did anything out of the way. The reality is we are not following the Jesus that's revealed in the Bible because that's not what he did. You start reading through the Gospels and what you find is Jesus interacting with the people that most people in society had written off. Jesus was engaged with sinners. And if we're going to be his disciples, the same thing must be true of us. The question is not what is he doing around people like that? The question is, if you're Jesus's disciples, what are you doing so far away from him? Because Jesus wants us in their lives. He says, you're the light of the world. Light can be shown from a distance. But when he says you're the salt of the earth, you see, salt has to have an impact and it has to touch the thing that it hopes to influence. And so we won't do that from a distance. Matthew 5, 13 through 16. 
Sometimes people say about religious people, maybe Christians, you guys think you're better than everybody else. And what do we say? No, we're not. We just have been saved by grace through faith. But if you would have said that to Jesus, he's the only person in the world who actually could have said, who knew. The reality is I am better than everybody else. And I will always be better than everybody else. But the interesting thing is, though he was and is better, people love to be around him. He would rebuke their sin and point it out to them. And they just couldn't get enough. The worst people in the world wanted to be around the best man in the world. And Jesus ate with sinners. We better be careful. We need to be careful that we don't have a Jesus that would not do anything with anybody who wasn't just like him. Jesus met Zacchaeus and he was more than a wee little man. Jesus says he also is a son of Israel and salvation has come to his house. Luke 19, 8 through 10. Jesus meets that woman in Simon's house and he says, woman, your sins are forgiven. Luke 7 and verse 49. The Samaritan woman had enough husbands to have a basketball team and her live in boyfriend coming off the bench. According to Jesus in John chapter four, she had five husbands and the one she was with now wasn't her husband. And she got Jesus's time. Not only did she get Jesus's time, he instructed her in such a way she went throughout all of Samaria, saying, I found the one about whom Moses and the prophets wrote Jesus, who's called Christ. You see, Jesus didn't sin with sinners. He never approved of sin, but he was engaged and involved with them. And so should we. This may be the hardest one for me as a Christian, as a preacher. I need to be careful that I don't spend all of my time around other saved people. We should be asking ourselves, would we be called what Jesus was called in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 12? He was a friend of sinners. What does that mean? It means, do we have real and deep relationships with people that don't go to church? Are we engaged with people that society would consider marginal, people that wouldn't run in our circles? Are we having dinner with them? Are we engaging with people that if we're not doing that, we're merely following a Jesus of our own construct and not the Jesus of the New Testament who actually came to seek and save the lost, who said, I have to go to Samaria, John four and verse four, because lost people are there. Beware of making a Jesus in our minds who's so sanitized that he's more concerned with offending religious people than saving lost people because the Jesus of the New Testament, he spent time with sinners. Here's number five. My Jesus would never be dissatisfied with religious division. Can't you hear him? This Jesus, I'm going to give you my word, the inspired New Testament. It's going to be written by the apostles, but don't worry about obeying it because in the end, it'll be so confusing. So overwhelming. In fact, there'll be so many interpretations. Nobody will ever be able to see it rightly. And so all I want every one of you to do is simply try your best and I'm going to save everybody in the end. That sounds right. That sounds good. But it's just not what Jesus said. Turn your Bible to John 17. I know we've quoted this passage a lot. I know you probably know it well and have it underlined. But turn to John 17 and let's just notice what Jesus actually says about religious division and why this matters. Because we might unknowingly subscribe to a Jesus who would never be dissatisfied with religious division. But the Jesus of John 17 just won't tolerate it. You remember Jesus prays first for himself, John 17, one through five. And then for the apostles, John 17, six through 19. But notice verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also, which will believe on me through their word, that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you've sent me. Stay with your Bible. Stay looking at the text. Jesus starts by saying, neither pray I for these alone. What does that mean? He's praying for for us, just like he did for the apostles. The idea that, well, that's how it was back then. And of course, they didn't have division back then. But now it's different. It won't work. Jesus anticipates that argument. And he says, same prayer for them, that they may all be one, be unified, unified like what? Agreeing to disagree. Notice the text. Just like you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also might be one in us, 
that the world might believe that you've sent me. You see, the Jesus who's not dissatisfied with religious division is not the Jesus of the New Testament. The apostles begged people, like the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10, I want you to make sure that you all speak the same thing and be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, Paul says, I want you to all make sure that you walk according to the calling that's called you with all lowliness and meekness and gentleness, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Psalm 133, verse 1. You know what this means? The my Jesus would never be dissatisfied with religious division flies in the face of what Jesus actually prayed for. There are people that want nothing to do with Christianity because they're just confused. They see churches on every corner, various denominations, teaching and practicing various things. And they say to themselves, I'm on the fence about religion, but I surely can't come over there because you all can't even agree on the same things. And you claim to follow and serve the same God. And we shake our heads and we say, absolutely away with denominationalism. But the reality is sometimes there's far there's far too much division, even in church, even in churches of Christ. We need a renewed focus and appreciation for what biblical unity truly is. And we need to appreciate that it means far more, according to Jesus, than worshiping in the same building. It means working side by side, as it was mentioned this morning, shoulder to shoulder for the same cause. Now, that's biblical unity. Anybody can get in the same building and say we believe the same things. But biblical unity means working side by side toward the same goal and toward the same end. Listen to Paul in Philippians 1:27. Only let your manner of life be that which is in conformity with the gospel. That whether I come see you or else be absent, I might hear of your affairs, that you stand fast with one spirit, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's what God wants. He wants unity. But some say my Jesus would never be concerned with religious division. Maybe just maybe we spend too much time talking about New Testament Christianity. Maybe in the end, it really doesn't matter what a church is called, how people worship, what people do in order to be saved. Maybe what God actually wants from every one of us is simply to do our best, love our neighbor and leave the particulars to him. I'm telling you, as sincere as that sounds, that's foreign to what the New Testament means by discipleship. Look at Matthew chapter 28 and notice what Jesus actually says about true discipleship in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Jesus says in Matthew 28, starting in verse 18, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Go you, therefore, and some translations have teach all nations. Jesus actually says, disciple the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Don't you see it? Baptize them in verse 19. Teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. There's no unity without that. Teaching them to do everything I've commanded you. Jesus wants us unified on the same page, striving together for the same cause. The Jesus who would never be put off by religious division. The Jesus who's okay with everybody doing their own thing is a Jesus of our own making and not the Jesus that we find in the New Testament. Now, here's the last one tonight. My Jesus would never forgive my sins. Alvin Kennard was released from prison in 2019. He had been incarcerated since 1984 for stealing a $50 worth of bread in Alabama. He was incarcerated because at the time in Alabama, there was this habitual felony, felony act and an individual that committed the felony four times, was automatically, without doubt, sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. 
a little bit before 2019, around 2018, that act was repealed. The problem was it wasn't retroactive, meaning it only worked forward. It didn't go back and get people like Mr. Kennard unless a judge was interested in your case, investigated what took place with you and sought to fight for you in the end. And that's exactly what happened to Kennard. A judge saw his case, figured out why has this man been in prison so long for such a petty crime. And as a result of that, he was released from prison. You see what happened to him. A law went in place, absolved his guilt. It went backwards and cleaned up the things that he had done wrong. And as a result, he's a free man. And if you and I are Christians, if we're in Christ, the same things happened. We were guilty of violating God's will, sentenced to eternal damnation without the possibility of parole. But the divine judge saw our case. He was interested in the blood of Jesus. According to Romans 3, 23 through 26, it was retroactive, not only cleansing those in Christ, but every Old Testament figure that will ever be seen in glory. The blood went back and cleansed them as well. And as a result of that, we stand justified through Jesus Christ. All of our sins forgiven. He's just and the justifier of those that believe in Jesus. But some people. Have a Jesus who would never forgive their sins. You remember what Peter says in Luke chapter five. He says, let down your nets for a catch. Peter doubts. And then in Luke five and verse eight, Peter says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And sometimes we have a Jesus like that. We have a Jesus that we think to ourselves, he can forgive a lot of people, but not me. Some of us just need to be told the truth. And the truth is, the reality is, you're really not that good at sinning. There really is nobody who can out his grace. Nobody's a better sinner than he is a savior. At least that's what Paul thought in Romans 5, 20 through 21, where sin abounds. Grace did much more abound. The reality is, if we bring ourselves into conformity with his will, he can and will save us. Nobody's run too far. Nobody's done too much. But there are a lot of people who have a Jesus who would never forgive their sins. They sold drugs or they cursed or they got drunk or they cheated on their spouse or they lied, or they stole money. And because of that, they serve a Jesus who will forgive the whole world. But when they read about Jesus in the New Testament, they say, oh, yes, forgiveness. Oh, yes, grace, you should try, but never for me, never for me. Because my Jesus, he could never and would never forgive my sins. Listen to the New Testament. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm chief. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 6, he gave himself as a ransom for all to be testified of in due time. He's the savior of all men, especially of those who believe. First Timothy, chapter four and verse 10, the Jesus of the Bible, he will forgive our sins. He will justify us and wash us white as snow before we obey the gospel. And after the Bible says Jesus lives to make intercession and forgive us, just like electricians rewire houses. And dentists fill cavities just like plumbers can unclog toilets in that same way. Jesus's specialty is in forgiving the sins of the world. You don't believe me. Open up to any account of the Gospels and show me the time when somebody came to Jesus and he thought twice about forgiving their sins. Show me the occasion where Jesus hears a scenario and scratches his head and says, you know, I've never heard this one before. I don't know what we're going to do about you. Show me the person that comes to Jesus with a background so dirty and so filthy that he says, you know what? We've got to do more research on cases like yours, or I don't know if you really will genuinely repent and forgive. You see, as familiar as that Jesus is to many of us, he's merely a fictitious construct of our minds, and he's not the Jesus of the New Testament. And to believe in a Jesus like that is blasphemous, and it insults his forgiving power. If you are in Christ and you've come to the cross to be forgiven, you never have to cross your fingers. 
You are not hoping in good luck. You serve a good Lord. Jesus says you are forgiven forever of all of your unrighteousness. Hebrews 8 and verse 12. God's not holding out on us. That Jesus, the one we've created in our minds, he's just as false as all the others. He's not the Jesus of the New Testament. The Jesus of the New Testament says in Matthew 26 and verse 28, this is my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Far from a license to do so, far from encouraging sin, it's just the reality. He knows what we need and he provides it. He longs to forgive us. It's what he wants to do. And it's the Jesus that every one of us needs to believe in. It doesn't matter which Jesus you believe in tonight, really. Out of all those six portraits, it doesn't matter which one you believe in. If you don't believe in the biblical Jesus, the one that Peter saw in Matthew 16 and he said in verse 16, you're the Christ the son of the living God. That is the only Jesus who ever saved us. We're far removed from Mr. Bauer, who said Jesus never existed. And as much as we appreciate Ehrman's historical findings that buttress the claim that Jesus actually did exist, that Jesus, a historical Jewish rabbi who taught good things and lived a good life, doesn't have enough power to save anybody. Only the Messiah revealed on the pages of the New Testament can save every one of us. And the great news for us is that he wants to. Maybe tonight somebody needs to know his saving power. His blood has never made a sin it couldn't cleanse. He's never met a sinner he couldn't and wouldn't love to save. If we can help you obey the gospel tonight, you put your faith and trust in Jesus and turn away from sin, and you confess, I believe Jesus is the Son of God, and you allow your body to be immersed in water, when you're baptized in that moment, he'll wash away all of your sins. You can rise to walk in newness of life and follow the true and living God, the true Jesus who is God and Christ of the world. If you've done that and you need the prayers of the church, if we can assist you in any way, Kaysen's going to lead us in a song to encourage us. If this is your invitation, come now as together we stand and we sing.